All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are standing in the confessional corner this week, finishing up Article 8 from the Formula of Concord, the Solid Declaration, looking this week especially at paragraphs 66 to 96. This week, we look at the person of Christ as the hymn, Songs of Thankfulness and Praise, reminds us at the end of every single verse that Jesus is God in man made manifest. So we are seeing this again and again as God delivers the gospel goods to us once again in and through the Concordist. So we're going to start off in paragraph 66. We're on page 592 of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. There is and remains in Christ only one divine omnipotence, power, majesty, and glory, which is peculiar to divine nature alone. But it shines, manifests, and exercises itself fully, yet voluntarily, in, with, and through the received, exalted human nature in Christ. In glowing iron, there are not two kinds of power to shine and burn, but the power to shine and to burn is a property of the fire. Since the fire is united with the iron, it manifests and exercises this power to shine and to burn in, with, and through the glowing iron. From this union, also the glowing iron has the power to shine and to burn without changing the essence and the natural properties of fire and iron. This guides how we understand the testimonies of Scripture that speak of the majesty to which the human nature in Christ is exalted. We do not understand them to mean that the divine majesty, which is peculiar to the divine nature of God's Son, is in the person of the Son of Man to be ascribed to Christ simply and purely according to his divine nature. Nor do we understand them to mean that this majesty is to be in Christ's human nature in such a way that his human nature would only have the title and name by a phrase and manner of speaking that is only in words, but indeed in truth doesn't have any communion whatever with it. For in that way it might also be said truthfully that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in all the creatures in whom God dwells, especially believers and saints. God is a spiritual, undivided essence. Therefore, he is present everywhere and in all creatures. Wherever he is dwelling, but especially in believers and saints, there he has his majesty with him. We could say that all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid, and all power in heaven and earth is given because the Holy Spirit, who has all power, is given to believers. In this way, then, no distinction would be made between Christ, according to his human nature, and other holy men. So Christ would be deprived of his majesty, which he has received above all creatures, as a man or according to his human nature. For no other creature, neither man nor angel, can or shall say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. For although God is in the saints with all the fullness of his Godhead that he has everywhere with himself, he does not dwell in them bodily, nor is he personally united with them as in Christ. For from such personal union it follows that Christ says, even according to his human nature, all authority in heaven and on earth has also been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. Also, John 13, 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Also, Colossians 2, 9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Also, scripture says, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Hebrews 2, 7-8. He is accepted who put all things and subjected under him. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. So now, if we want to say that there is really nothing different with the way that the fullness of deity dwelled in the human nature of Jesus than it does in us, 
then we really don't need Jesus, do we? I mean, if the Holy Spirit that dwells within us in the same way as he did and was united with Jesus, there's no need for Jesus anymore. He could have just said, okay, everybody's good again. But no, he came and he gives us that union with the Holy Spirit, not in the same way that he has it, because as Colossians says, the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily. He does not dwell in us bodily, nor in any other saint. We have it in a special way, which is actually a regular way, because it is the way that God is with all his creatures and all of creation, where God is everywhere present. So there's nothing special about us. And if we try to make the presence with Jesus just like ours, then we make Jesus nothing special. Picking up in paragraph 71. By no means, however, do we believe, teach, and confess an infusion of God's majesty and of all its properties into Christ's human nature by which the divine nature is weakened, or anything that belongs to it is surrendered to another nature that it does not keep it for itself. Nor do we say that the human nature in its substance and essence should have received equal majesty, separate or distinct from the nature and essence of God's Son, like when water, wine, or oil is poured from one vessel into another. For the human nature and no other creature in heaven or on earth is capable of receiving God's omnipotence in such a way that it would become in itself an almighty essence or have in and by itself almighty powers. Then the human nature in Christ would be denied and would be entirely converted into divinity. Such teaching is contrary to our Christian faith and also to the teaching of all the prophets and apostles. So if we try to go the other direction and say, oh no, this makes Jesus's human nature different from ours then again, Jesus is of no use to us. We believe, teach, and confess that God the Father has given his Son, Spirit to Christ, his beloved Son, according to the received humanity. Because of this, he is also called Messiah, the Anointed. He has not received his gifts with limits as other saints. For on Christ the Lord, according to his received human nature, rests the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, Isaiah 11.2, 11, also Colossians 2.3, and Isaiah 61.1. According to his divinity, he is of one essence with the Holy Spirit. This not in such a way that as a man he knew and could do only some things, like other saints know and can do things by God's Spirit, who works in them only created gifts. According to his divinity, Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And from him, as also from the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds, John 15.26. So the Spirit is and remains Christ, 1 Peter 1.11, and the Father's own Spirit to all eternity, not separated from God's Son. Therefore, as the Church Fathers say, the entire fullness of the Spirit has been communicated by the personal union to Christ according to the flesh, which is personally united with God's Son. This voluntarily manifests and shows itself with all its power in, with, and through Christ's human nature. So Christ, according to his human nature, not only knows some things and is ignorant of others, Matthew 24, 36, but he also can do some things and is able to undo others. Yet even now, according to the received human nature, he knows and can do all things. For on him the Father poured the spirit of wisdom and power without measure. So as man, Christ has received all knowledge and all power in deed and truth through this personal union. And so all the treasures of wisdom are hidden in him. All power is given to him. He is seated at the right hand of God's majesty and power. 
From history, it can be learned at the time of the Emperor Valens that there was among the Arians a peculiar sect known as the Agonete. They had this name because they imagined that the Son, the Father's Word, knew all things, but that he rece his received human nature is ignorant of many things. Gregory the Great wrote against them. So what do we believe, teach, and confess? That God the Father has given the Spirit to the Son according to the received humanity, and not in limits like he gives to us. He gives it full strength to Jesus. And so also we have this, even among the Arians, where they taught that, yes, okay, there are two different Jesuses, basically. There is the Christ, and there is Jesus of Nazareth. And according to the Christ, Jesus knows everything. But according to the man from Nazareth, he only knows what he's been taught. Therefore, they could be called the Agonete, which roughly translates from the Latin as the ignorant. Why would you pick a name like that for yourself? I don't know. But, of course, they probably did not pick that name for themselves. It was probably given to them, probably by Gregory the Great, in writing against them. So we pick up in paragraph 76. The divine and the human nature have this personal union with each other in the person of Christ, and have the communion resulting from it in deed and truth. For this reason, there is attributed to Christ according to the flesh, what his flesh, according to its nature and essence, cannot be by itself. Apart from this union, his flesh cannot have these attributes. His flesh is a truly life-giving food, and his blood a truly life-giving drink, John 6.55. The 200 fathers of the Council of Ephesus have testified that Christ's flesh is a life-giving flesh. Therefore, this man only, and no man besides, either in heaven or on earth, can say with truth, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Matthew 18.20 Also, and behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Matthew 28.20 We do not understand these testimonies to mean that only Christ's divinity is present with us in the Christian church and congregation, and that such presence does not apply to Christ according to his humanity in no way whatever. For in that way Peter, Paul, and all the saints in heaven, since divinity, which is present everywhere, dwells in them, would also be with us on earth. However, the Holy Scriptures say this only about Christ, and no other man. We hold that by these words the majesty of the man Christ is declared. Christ has received this majesty according to his humanity at the right hand of God's majesty and power. So also according to his received human nature and with the same, he can be and also is present where he wants to be. He is present especially in his church and congregation on earth as mediator, head, king, and high priest. This presence is not in part or only one half of him. Christ's entire person is present, to which both natures belong, the divine and the human, not only according to his divinity, but also according to and with his received human nature. He is our brother, Hebrews 2.17, and we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, Genesis 2.23. And he has instituted his Holy Supper for the certain assurance and confirmation of this, so that he will be with us and dwell, work, and be effective in us also according to that nature from which he has flesh and blood. Upon this firm foundation, Dr. Luther, of blessed memory, has also written about Christ's majesty according to his human nature. And now we bring in for the bulk of the rest of the article, quotations from the Confession Concerning Christ's Supper, and the treatise on the last words of David. So let's look at these quotes real quick. In the Confession Concerning Christ's Supper, he writes about 
the person of Christ. Now, since he, Christ, is a man who is supernaturally one person with God, and apart from this man there is no God, it must follow that according to the third supernatural mode, he is and can be wherever God is, and that everything is full of Christ through and through, even according to his humanity, not according to the first corporeal circumscribed mode, but according to the supernatural divine mode. Here you must take your stand and say that wherever Christ is according to his divinity, he is there as a natural divine person, and he is also naturally and personally there as his conception in his mother's womb proves conclusively. For if he was the Son of God, he had to be in his mother's womb naturally and personally and become a man. But if he is present naturally and personally wherever he is, then he must remain man there too, since he is not two separate persons but a single person. Wherever this person is, it is the single indivisible person, and you cannot say here is God, then you must also say Christ the man is present too. And if you could show me one place where God is and not the man, then the person is already divided, and I could at once say truthfully, here is God who is not man and has never become man. But no God like that for me. For it would follow from this that space and place had separated the two natures from one another and thus divided the person even though death and all the devils had been unable to separate and tear them apart. This would leave me a poor sort of Christ if he were present only at one single place as a divine and human person, and if all other places he had to be nothing more than a mere isolated God and a divine person without the humanity. No, comrade, wherever you place God for me, you must also place the humanity for me. They simply will not let themselves be separated and divided from each other. He has become one person and does not separate the humanity from himself. Luther spells it out right there very clearly. You cannot have one without the other. In his treatise on the last words of David, which Dr. Luther wrote shortly before his death, he says the following. According to the second, the temporal human birth, Christ was also given the eternal dominion of God, yet temporarily and not from eternally. For the human nature of Christ was not from eternity as his divine nature was. It is computed that Jesus, Mary's son, is 1,543 years old this year. But from the moment when deity and humanity were united in one person, the man, Mary's son, is and is called Almighty Eternal God, who has eternal dominion, who has created all things and preserves them through the communication of attributes, because he is one person with the Godhead and is also very God. Christ refers to this in Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And in Matthew twenty eight eighteen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To which me? To me, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's incarnate son. I had this from my Father from eternity before I became man. But when I became man, it was imparted to me in time according to my human nature. And I kept it concealed until my resurrection and ascent into heaven, when it was to be manifested and glorified. Thus St. Paul declares in Romans 1.4, he was glorified or designated Son of God in power. John speaks of this as being glorified in chapter 7, 35, or 39. So again, we have, who does Jesus say that he is as God and man? He is God from the beginning, eternally co-eternal with God, yet also Mary's incarnate Son. You cannot have one without the other. Similar testimonies are found in Dr. Luther's writings, but especially in the book that these words still stand firm and in the confession concerning Christ's Supper. To these writings, as well-grounded explanations of Christ's majesty at God's right hand and of his testament, we have referred for the sake of brevity. We have referred to them in this article, as well as in the Holy Supper, as has been mentioned before. 
So again, we have all of these things being repeated once again because all of this in Article 8 stems from the arguments in Article 7. So we have these over and over again because it involves the same exact thing. Can you have God and man separated in Christ? And the answer is no. The Concordist conclude the affirmative statements in paragraph 87. When such majesty is denied to Christ according to his humanity, we regard it as a deadly error. For by this, the very great consolation mentioned above is taken from Christians, which they have in the promise about the presence and dwelling with them of their head, king, and high priest. He has promised them that not only his mere divinity would be with them, which to us poor sinners is like consuming fire on dry stubble, but Christ promised that he, he the man who has spoken with them, who has experienced all tribulations in his received human nature, and who can therefore have sympathy with us, as with men and his brethren, he will be with us in all our troubles, also according to the nature by which he is our brother, and we are flesh of his flesh. So if it was just Jesus being here because of his divinity, that does us very little good, apart from the Old Testament saints who had God in his divinity apart from any humanity. We don't go backwards. We go forwards. And Jesus drives us forward as he leads us both in his humanity and his divinity. Now for the last roughly 10 paragraphs, we have seven negative statements, seven false teachings that we utterly reject and condemn. So what are these? Well, let's get into it. We're in paragraph 88 on page 595. We unanimously reject and condemn with mouth and heart all errors not in accordance with the teaching presented. These are contrary to the prophetic and apostolic scriptures, the pure symbols, and our Christian Augsburg Confession. Number one, when it is believed or taught by anyone that on account of the personal union, the human nature is mingled with the divine or is changed into it. Number two, the human nature in Christ is everywhere present in the same way as the divinity, as an infinite essence by essential power and property of its nature. Number three, the human nature in Christ has become equal to and like the divine nature in its substance and essence or in its essential properties. Number four, Christ's humanity is locally extended in all places of heaven and earth. This should not even be attributed to the divinity, but Christ, by his divine omnipotence, wherever he will, can be present with his body, which he has placed at the right hand of God's majesty and power. This is especially the case where he has in his word promised his presence, as in the Holy Supper. His omnipotence and wisdom can well accomplish this without change or abolition of his true human nature. Number five, Christ's mere human nature has suffered for us and redeemed us, with which God's Son is said to have no communion whatever in suffering. Number six, Christ is present with us on earth in the word preached and in the right use of the holy sacraments only according to his divinity. This presence of Christ does not in any way apply to his received human nature. And number seven, the received human nature in Christ has indeed in truth no communion whatever with the divine power, might, wisdom, majesty, and glory, but has in common only the mere title and name. So these seven things are things that we have talked the last few weeks, a couple of months really over, as to the issues with wanting to put limits on Christ's humanity, because we understand human nature as being finite and having only the circumscribed mode. God knows other ways 
to be present everywhere. And he has not told us what these things are. But he also says, as number four says, Christ's humanity is not to be locally extended in all places of heaven and earth. That somehow Jesus has gotten so big in his body that he covers all of creation like inside his belly or inside his chest or something like that. That should not even be attributed to the divinity of God, but that God, as he chooses, can be wherever he wants to be in whatever way he wants to be. And when Christ is there with us, it is both as divine son of God and human son of man. So we close up this week, paragraph 96. These errors and all that are contrary and opposed to the doctrine presented above, we reject and condemn as contrary to God's pure word, the scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles, and our Christian faith and confession. Since in the holy scriptures Christ is called a mystery upon which all heretics dash their heads, we admonish all Christians not to arrogantly indulge their reason in crafty investigations about such mysteries. With the beloved apostles, they should simply believe. They should close the eyes of their reason and bring their understanding into captivity to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5, and rejoice without ceasing in the fact that our flesh and blood is placed so high at the right hand of God's majesty and almighty power. In this way, we will certainly find constant consolation in every difficulty and remain well guarded against deadly error. What is the point of Jesus being God and man and the promise that I will be with you always to the end of the age? to comfort us, to show us that he is there, not just in the word and the sacraments as being remote, like in the Old Testament Levitical system, but he is here personally with us. That is the great comfort we have in Jesus being God and man in the flesh, and that he, as God and man, died for us, rose for us, and ascended into heaven for us, and so also gives us the great benefits of being his children. That is what I pray you get out of both Article 7 and Article 8 of the Formula of Concord, that great sense of comfort. And in that comfort, you find strength to wrestle with the theologies around you this week and always. Amen.